been subordinate to our limitations until now. The time has come to cast aside these bonds and to elevate our consciousness to a higher plane. It is time to become a part of the Infinite World Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds Podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds Magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. Winston, we're here, and we're going to jump right into this episode because the last episode was kind of a catch-up. And we're going to discuss, I think, for both of us, one of the seminal sci-fi properties that we haven't talked about yet, which is Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, if we're going to jump right in, I think we should jump in like back first, but like looking up at the camera and wave our hand in front of us as we like cloak ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Using our, I can't remember what they called it in the movie. Now I didn't write that detail down, but I'm just remembering how cool that looks. Oh, so cool, man. So cool. Yeah, we're doing Ghost in the Shell. This is a pretty good one. I think a pretty good follow-up to our AI episode because at very least the anime has a lot to do with AI. And, you know, it's, it's definitely in the graphic novel here and there, too. We thought about doing just a cyberpunk episode, like entirely dedicated to cyberpunk, but it's just so broad. You know, we've already covered Blade Runner, and we've already covered Akira. It would be kind of rehashing some of those other ones. So I think we're just going to look at the individual properties. And this, if you're talking about cyberpunk or just science fiction in general, or just manga or anime or animation in general. This is a largely important work in all those arenas. So I'm really glad we're taking this one on. It's a fun thing to get to rewatch to prepare for the episode. I know I did the same thing and I forgot like uh, what's crazy is that I don't think the, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but I don't think people liked, like I love the anime, the anime for me killed it. Oh yeah. But I also did like the film and the more I watch it, the more I really enjoy it. I, I don't think I had the same reaction and maybe that's why I'm kind of saying that other people didn't. I don't know. But uh, but I I liked it. I watched it again for this as well and I've seen it twice now. The second time watching it, I remember thinking, this isn't as bad as I remember it being. But exactly. exactly. I, still wouldn't call myself, I still wouldn't call myself a fan. I, I, I have some notes about why I have that opinion, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Since we're doing Ghost in the Shell, I think it's important that we start... First, talking about Masamuni Shiro, who is the uh, creator of Ghost in the Shell. He is a mangaka and a writer. And uh, Shiro was born on November 23rd, 1961 in Kobe, Japan. He didn't really have an upbringing where he cared much about, at least from what I could tell, like his upbringing didn't seem like he was destined to be a creator when he was growing up. He went to college on, I think he was going for business. But when he was in college, he got interested in manga and he started reading them and he decided he was going to create his own. And it turned out that he had an insane amount of talent and capability of doing it and not to mention work ethic because, you know, he is both a writer and the artist for these stories. So wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So he was, what, what level of an artist was he? Was he, did he all of a sudden just pick up a pen? Well, I don't think it was anything like that. I don't think it's so like dramatic as the, he just picked up a pen for the first time, you know, but he yeah. was not following art as a career path. Okay. You know what okay. I mean? And when I was trying to read the biographical information I find online, it doesn't stress anything about that. Guys, if I'm wrong, and you know more about Shiro than I do, which wouldn't be that surprising. Let me know. Hit me up and send me a DM or send me an email and let me know that I've got it wrong. But from what I could tell, he was just like an studious 
student, like he paid attention to the regular classes and was not thought of by his parents and those who knew him as a youngster as destined to do this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. He was more like, they thought he'd go to business school and become a business person. But when he went to college, he started getting more into manga and reading it. And then he was like, you know what, I'm going to try my hand at this. When he was 21 years old or 21, 22, he created his first manga. It's called Black Magic. I've never read this one. It came out in 1983 and it centers around the efforts of a female journalist named Cybel trying to save a young girl from an out-of-control military android created by the girl's grandfather. Mm. I've looked at some of the images of it. The version I found online was in Japanese. So uh, I couldn't read it. I could just look at some of the art. It definitely seems very cyberpunk, like in its style too. And this came out in 1983, you know, and obviously this wasn't a big hit or anything. But in the timeline of Cyberpunk, 1983 is still landing pretty darn early. Blade Runner came out in 1982. As far as the subgenre goes, this is pretty nascent, like right near the beginning of the birth of the genre. So he was like one of the forefathers of the genre, at least in terms of liking it from the beginning, you know, like thinking, oh, this is the genre I want to work in. This is, you know, what yeah. I want my career in. Yeah. And so it, Black Magic came out. It was circulated, it ended up in some magazines, and then two years later, he followed it up with what a lot of people who are like heavily into anime think of as his big life's work, and that's a manga called Appleseed. I was somewhat familiar with Appleseed. I've read a couple of issues here and there, and I've seen a couple of the animes. It's been made into three different animes, and it's also had like a series in Japan and everything. And this is like a really weird and interesting, but also extremely cyberpunk story. It's set in Los Angeles after a world war and society is basically crumbling and there are all these different factions in the world vying for control of different areas and for the whole world and everything. The book follows these two SWAT officers. They're called E-SWAT officers. Their names are Dunin Newt and Breerius Hecatonkeries. <laughs> Dunin Newt and Breerius Hecatonkeries. And they're like... SWAT cops and one of them wears like mecha armor and they're in Los Angeles trying to deal with this new world situation. We could probably do an episode on Appleseed all by itself. Really? Yeah. I mean, and it's really interesting and it definitely bears mentioning in the world of cyberpunk. Most people know him for his follow-up to Appleseed, which is of course Ghost in the Shell. Having created Appleseed and then Ghost in a Shell, he's already like on par with Ridley Scott yeah. or uh, Katsuhiro Tomo yeah. or William Gibson as far as being a progenitor of the genre. Yeah. He's there. He's a Neil Stevenson. And since he's created Ghost in the Shell, it's pretty much been what he's worked with ever since. There have been follow-ups to it and different movies made of it and including the live-action remake. I tried to learn more about Shiro as an individual and I couldn't really find all that much. But what did fascinate me reading about him was that I learned that he put detailed footnotes for all of the comics he made in which he describes why he believed the characters would act the way they would, what their motivations are. Oh, wow. He explains the technology they're using and how the technology they're using affects their individual mindset in the world they're in. And I also learned that he's, he's quite a reader. So um, in that, let's, let's go ahead and jump into Ghost in the Shell the manga first. I loved the work that he did. I mean, I think his art is amazing. It yeah. really blew me away. And what's crazy, you're talking 1989, man. Right. It's just nuts. Akira was released in 1988. I'm bringing it up because it's a cyberpunk anime. Yeah. Before it was released, the, the anime at least, Shiro had already been working on Ghost in the Shell for quite some time. Like he basically started work on it right after Appleseed was released. You know, because he considers it 
it seems like he considers it to be his magnum opus. I want to ask you something, because uh, this is just kind of occurring to me. Okay. Is in when we look at cyberpunk in relation to Akira versus Ghost in the Shell, like I, Ghost in the Shell to me seems much more of a cyberpunk uh, type of a work in the sense that there's so much transhumanism, right? Where we're going to meld the uh, the machine and man, whereas Akira, mm-hmm. you know, is a little more fantastical. Yes, it took place in like a dystopian like future, but less transhumanism, more like kind of fantastical, almost like Stephen Kingish, like evolution of the, sure. the you know fire starter telekinesis all that kind of a thing where this is like pure technology yeah pure technology where you have almost two branches to me of like this cyberpunk movement where you have the simulation type of a thing like snow crash with neil stevenson and then with this you have more of that transhumanism right which is different right it's very very different but it's the same. It's still melding a man and machine. But this is like, okay, this is more like we're still in the real world, this dystopian world. So uh, it's it's kind of cool how you have those two different branches right there. Absolutely. And I, I think that's a really good point. I don't know if I would use the word fantastical. I don't know how, I actually don't know how I would describe Akira, you know? I know, it, right? It's, it's definitely not as based in reality that we understand. I feel like what Akira tries to do is try to say, it will not be long before technology or our understanding of the science falls short of the growth of it. Yeah. We will no longer be in control of those things and there will be sort of a transcendence into this higher plane. We'll be able to spur this kind of a human evolution through our science, but not necessarily melding it with robotics. Right. And uh, he also doesn't come with any sort of plausible explanation of how that could happen. Yeah. In Akira, there's no like, of course, it's very much like, look at the aura that he's giving off. You know what I mean? You know, it's very like Star Trek science. You know what I mean? It's very much buzzwords that don't actually mean anything in relation to actual science. But Ghost in the Shell is different, totally different, because Ghost in the Shell is based entirely on science as we know it. And in fact, many of the things that you see in Ghost in the Shell are you know, happening all around us. Dude, that's like another thing that, that I think bears mentioning is that as far as the, you know, foretelling where we would be in 30 years, you know, which is where we are now, you know, 35 years later, it's, I think of the wor- those works, you know, I think that Ghost in the Shell is the one that is way closer oh, yeah. to predicting reality than oh, much closer. any kind of a simulation or spurring this kind of an evolutionary fantastical whatever you want to call it so before we i mean delve further into that let's uh just give like a breakdown of the manga and what it's about for people who aren't necessarily familiar because i feel like most people are going to be familiar but i always like to make sure that you know we start at square one in case there's a casual listener or it's you know a hardcore sci-fi fan who just hasn't gotten around to this yet i like a recap anyways you know because your take your recap is gonna go oh i missed that i didn't think about that so yeah that's the great thing about discussing stuff and i guess that's the great thing about the podcast format you know okay so ghost of the shell is a sign-in manga and sign-in mangas are specifically directed towards young men like teenagers or men in their early 20s it was illustrated by masamune shiro who was first published in 1989 we've gone over all of that the title ghost in the shell is based on the book Ghost in the Machine 
by Arthur Kostler, which is a book on philosophical psychology that came out in the 1960s, 1967 to be precise. And I won't go all into that, but I'm going to just read this Mm -hmm. little section. This will take me just a second here. And I feel like that's going to play a part in the discussion. And I feel like we've already kind of hit on it unintentionally. So let me just read this to you. Okay, Kostler's materialistic account argues that the personal experience of duality rises from what Kostler calls a holon. This is a made-up word. The notion of a holon emerges from the observation that everything in nature is both a whole and a part. It's true of atoms, which are whole in themselves, but they're part of molecules. Molecules, which can be both whole and part of cells. Cells, which can be both autonomous units and parts of organisms. It's also true for human beings who have an independent life and are part of social systems. Every holon is willing to express contradictory tendencies, to express itself and to disappear into something greater than itself. For humans, those tendencies lead to an error in development. We create collective units that are based on the oppression of some individuals and on the inflated egos of others. This is for Kosler an error of transcendence and that is reflected in the poor integration of our reptilian brains and our cognitive brains. Okay, that is sort of like a summary of the philosophy of the book in a way. Okay. And what really I think is really interesting about this is how cyberpunk really deals with this topic a lot more than you'd think. The idea that every person is a part of something and is an individual. And I really think that major is the whole on represented in this story you know and major Mm. is the main character story but she is extremely individualistic goes off on her own does all her own thing is really the only one like her but she is part of section nine and works for the government as part of section nine anyway he, he named after this book and i just thought that that was an interesting concept about how human beings are constantly trying to have their own self their individual self and try to be part of the human race, be part of society, be part of, you know, a family, etc. And it does, it creates mm-hmm. a schism in our psyches. And if that's something that comes up again, we'll see. I just thought it was really interesting when I was reading about all this, and I just thought I'd write it down. Yeah, no, no doubt. So we'll put a pin in that. The name has is self-explanatory in a way when you watch the anime, at least. But it's, I, I feel like a little bit less so in what I've read of the manga. And... Now we know that there's a bit of a double meaning behind it as well. No, I, I love things like that because it's really cool to see like what was the, the real deep themes that were driving the creator of the work. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Where he just kept falling back on this again and again. This is what's driving, you know, this engine. So, I, yeah, I love that. I think that's really good. It's a deep dive. I love it. Another reason I wanted to bring up his reading of this book, you know, obviously he was involved with a lot of different reading because you don't just accidentally pick up Arthur Kostler's The Ghost in the Machine, you know, when you're a Japanese guy. Yeah. You know I mean, obviously he went down a rabbit hole and ended up coming across these ideas. But one thing I want to point out is that when his first manga came out, Black Magic, people really praised the art in it, but they were kind of dismissive of the writing. Ah. So I kind of get the impression from that. And although I really like Appleseed and Appleseed reads pretty well, it is kind of a, a bit of a mess of a story. Yeah. In a way. It's kind of all over the place. I wouldn't call it the easiest to follow narrative in the world. And it doesn't exactly go anywhere. 
in a way. For the big Appleseed fans out there, I apologize. I'm not trying to kick your baby or anything over here. I just mean, <laughs> it doesn't quite have the philosophical underpinnings, obviously, that goes to the shells. That's my point. Exactly. And when and so many of the works that we've talked about, the great works, do have that underpinning, that philosophical underpinning that drives the entire thing. That's Absolutely. what I and think about it, that. It seems to me like Masamune Shiro saw that people were dismissive of his writing and said, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a foundation in my own mind yeah. of philosophical thought so that I can tell a better story. You know who talked about that real quick was Hemingway. Hemingway talked about, listen, these are the things that you as a writer, it's like the iceberg theory. You only need to show the really tip of the iceberg, but the the author has to know what how would the shape and the size and what constitutes that iceberg below the water and that i think this is part of it right right yeah even if he's not showing it in every sentence you know you know it's like the story as a whole tells you that and like you say it's the story and what you read in the hemingway book which is usually very pared down very easy to read story and beneath it exists all these philosophical ideas like the old man in the sea is a classic example of this when you first start yeah. learning about this idea of philosophy being hidden behind simple writing usually the story they show you in school is the old man in the sea you know what i mean they're like here's the example of that idea yeah. hemingway's a perfect example actually so now that we know that at least about the creation of this book. Let's go a little bit more into the plot. It's set in a fictional city in Japan called Niihama. It's in Niihama Prefecture, and it's in the mid-21st century, so for us, the not-too-distant future. And it follows the uh, members of Public Security Section 9. They're kind of hard to describe. They're like a paramilitary, police, task force, SWAT team, covert political organization, counter-terrorism, counter-cyber-terrorism. They're like a black ops organization. Yeah, Black Ops, yeah. In fact, in the film, the first thing we see is a member of the organization assassinate someone. And the story mostly centers around Major Matoko Kusanagi. And uh, Major is such an awesome character, man. She's a highly advanced cyborg. And you could almost not even call her a cyborg. She's almost a full-on robot. Her entire body is cybernetic, robotic. The only thing is that she has an upgraded human brain. Her brain was originally belonged to a human being, but it has been um, upgraded to cybernetic parts as well. So it's not even a fully human brain. Basically, the story sets around her. She's like hella strong. She's hella fast. She's uh, fearless. She's a great tactician. As a character, she's almost perfect, you know? Mm -hmm. Other than because she is cybernetic, it makes her vulnerable to cyber attacks and like being hacked and that kind of thing. And that's sort of, that's sort of a part mm -hmm. of her character, her struggle in this cyberpunk world which I think there's a point to be made there as well. And uh, here's another thing I also wanted to point out, and this will go over into the movie as well, is that her character is very beautiful and intentionally beautifully drawn and often appears to be almost nude, even though you know she has robotic parts, whatever. Both in the manga and in the film, she's like, you know, happy to be not wearing clothes. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that's interesting about that for me is that unlike so many other mangas and so many other just general works of fiction and in pop culture works is that even though she is presented this way, which I'm sure, you know, was a stylistic choice on Shiro's part because it's a book written for young men, none of the other characters in the story ever sexualize Major in any way that I've ever seen. In any of the issues of the manga I've read or in the movie, she's not treated that way by good guys or bad guys. Like she's just treated more or less as a cop. Yeah, that's a good point. 
I never thought about Talk that. about your duality yeah. there. It's sort of a weird duality because she's drawn that way. I mean, she's got nipples, you know, and takes off her clothes several times in several scenes. And, but none of the other characters are like, you know, awooga, their tongue's hanging out, which is totally normal in pop <laughs> culture. But nobody ever does that with her. So I don't exactly know what Shiro's motivation behind that decision was, but it is interesting to observe. Now, now that I noticed it, I was like, huh. The reason I saw that is somebody actually left a comment. This is from somebody named Mark Kanaya Jr. I think that's how you'd say it, or Mark K. Anaya. He said, there's possibly release versions where she's edited or censored, but uh, he said that they understand that they made a concerted effort to not make Major sexualized. And I, I mean, when they say they, they have to mean Shiro. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even though he didn't direct or write the screenplay to the film, he surely was involved with the production, you know? Yeah. So that's pretty much the story there. On the surface, that plot, a hyper-advanced cyborg who's on a SWAT team, you know, if you just tell that to a normal person, most of the time they're not going to get any sort of impression about the philosophical nature of this work. You might hear that and think, action movie. But it's not. It really isn't. And even though I don't think the dialogue writing in the film is necessarily all that great in terms of like when they try to delve into the philosophical stuff in the film, I think it's a little clunky, but I do think they very clunkily make some of their philosophical points. You said you've read the manga all the way through, right? Yeah. Well, tell, tell us your thoughts. Tell us what you think about it. And like, how, I mean, when, I mean when, when did you read it? I, it's been, it's been quite a few years. It's probably been like seven years. I just remember being, you know, finishing it and just being like overwhelmed, like kind of with Akira, especially after seeing the anime and then going back and reading it, I was really, really blown away by how much how how great it was and how in-depth it went and how like in akira there were just so much of it you know the going forward with like a manga like like with akira where it spans so many years they actually are able to dive into things that we're not able to do in a a short two-hour movie and so that's kind of what i was blown away by and so i recommend to anybody who really likes the uh the anime or the film um, to go ahead and pick up the manga and just take your time and go through it. Because I, I, it was exactly just like with Akira, where I was like, oh, I cannot believe how literary this is. Because for me, like even like Watchmen, where you just have these layers that are going on. Sometimes I would just go back and reread like one of the issues. And I would just be like, oh, so he's kind of dealing with this and dealing with that. And so, I don't know. It, I th- it just felt a lot more literary than the, uh, than the anime or the film. Or just more in-depth and more layered. Like I said, I haven't read the whole thing. There's a lot to it. There's a fair amount of issues. Yeah. Not to mention restarts and sequels and that kind of thing. So I, I haven't read a ton, but I've read a couple in the past. But in preparation for this, I went and found a few online and read them. And it's like individual stories of things that are happening with Section 9. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're related to cyber attacks. Sometimes they're related to like regular government espionage, internal investigation type stories, that kind of thing. But as you say, they all kind of like take a literary and philosophical bent to them in like one direction or another. And I, for me, how hard would it be to read this and then say, oh, we're going to make a movie of this because it's all like shorts, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I had the same experience with Sandman where yes. I, I, <laughs> where you're just like, okay, I kind of get, I love the Netflix um, live action of Sandman. but Yeah, it's quite good. It's amazing. But at the same time, going back after watching and then going back and rereading Sandman, I'm like, I forgot how experienced 
expansive right. that work it really is. And so it's kind of a cool thing to go back. You know what I used to do when I would always, when I was younger and I would re- watch a movie that I really enjoyed, I would go back and find, try and find the book and read the book. Mm-hmm. And I actually enjoyed that just as much as reading the book first and then the movie because absolutely you, you always say this about how they're like companion pieces and not yeah you know they shouldn't they shouldn't be competing with one another yeah people say oh the book's better or the movie's better or whatever and it's always like well read them both and then they're both better yes you know yes you we're on the same page here with that one books and film it's all storytelling you know what i mean i even extend this into concept albums and TV shows and audiobooks and other types of related works even video games, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, although I, I personally don't play video games. It's not because that's a condemnation of video games. It's just I don't have time. When I watch somebody else I know playing a video game and I start paying attention to the story being told, I'm like, okay, so this is like... It's a story. This is an in-depth story here. You know, this In-depth is not, story, yeah. Yeah. You have to really keep in mind that I love the, the way to describe a movie is that it's really a short story. It's not a novel. Right. You only have two hours. You can only deal with X amount of scenes. There's only like 30, you know, so whatever scenes that you can really put in a movie. There's not that many that you're going to yeah. be able to throw into you're two hours. You're absolutely right. This is a good segue into the film. The anime was released in 1995, and it was directed by Mamoru Oshii, and the screenplay was by Kazunori Ito. So uh, these are two filmmakers that had worked together before. They had done some mecha work before and some like sort of indie animated films. And they were kind of known for being like indie animated film co- collaborators. Okay. I think they did a really good idea of instead of trying to fit a whole bunch of these little stories together somehow or string them together, they just picked a storyline that fit in with the storylines from the manga and just kind of went with one individual story. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's the kind of story you'd read in a single issue. I think they call them chapters in manga, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. It's just like one little story, and you read all about it, and that's the end of it. It definitely has an ending that wouldn't fit in with the rest of them, but that's the, the power of a feature-length film. So you could do that. Mm-hmm. So this movie came out in 1995. Guys, if you haven't seen this movie, definitely watch this movie. It's short. It's only an hour and like 25 minutes long. But it is a profoundly excellent movie it takes a little bit of i'll be clear it's not meant for young audiences it's definitely a movie that you have to like pay a little bit of attention to and a movie that you might it might require two viewings for some folks don't worry if it does it's taken me a lot of viewings to fully appreciate it but it's kind of a complex plot with a lot of deep philosophical questions being asked throughout to me what this movie is like imagine if robocop weren't satire it's definitely about a cybernetic being. Are they human or not? Are their actions ethical or not? What determines that? Who's in control of them? What is free will? All of those things. And much more. Much more. So this movie was released, and because of all of the reasons I just mentioned, was a gigantic box office failure, at least here in the United States. It made like less than half a million dollars in the United States and was generally considered a box office failure even in Japan and wherever it was released. It was not considered a success. However, like a lot of movies we tend to talk about, it eventually became a success because it had excellent video sales. Even after it left theaters, people still talked about it and rented it. And At the time, video rentals were a huge, gigantic market. Hundreds of millions of dollars, at least billions of dollars. I mean, probably not for this particular one, but the industry itself. But it made millions of dollars in video sales and rentals 
And since it was released, it kind of went from being like, a, oh, that movie was a failure. It was too complicated. People don't understand it. It's now, thanks to repeated viewing, started to be looked at as one of the greatest animes, if not the greatest anime ever made. It's important from a critical perspective, you know, forget the box office, but from a critical perspective, the Wachowskis, you know, they said it was just a direct, they looked oh. at and they showed Joel Silver, the producer of The Matrix, this is what we want to do. But we want yeah. to do it with a live action film. We want to create this for real. Were they ever, they were super successful, I'll tell you. James Cameron said it, he mm -hmm. regarded it as, quote, the first truly adult animation film to reach a level of literary and visual excellence. I like almost all of his films, except what he's been doing lately. But I certainly respect him as a filmmaker, man. The yes. guy definitely knows. You yeah. know, we talk about James Cameron quite a few times on this. I think, did we, didn't we do a James Cameron episode we at one have. point? We might have. I mean, <laughs> if we if we didn't, we talked about it at great length on some episode. Yeah, for sure. We've been doing this long enough, guys, that I do forget things that we've done now. It's been it's been, it's been sufficient amount of time has passed now. I mean, we're at like episode. I think this is like the forty third episode or something. So yeah. forgive me, I don't remember everything. So the plot of the movie is like like I said, like a standalone plot. And it once again stars the major. This one's about an elusive cyber criminal called the Puppet Master, who's been hacking into people's minds because, like I say, everybody has cybernetic implants in their brains these days, and is like controlling them like the Puppet Master would, and is making them do all of these things that really are kind of hard to understand what the motivation is. Honestly, until the end of the movie, you find out. I don't want to spoil it for everybody. You know what? We're going to spoil it. So spoil sorry, it. every guy. Spoil it. Spoiling it. Okay, so at the end of the movie, you find out that the Puppet Master is an accidental artificial intelligence. It is an artificial intelligence that was programmed by a programmer or a team of programmers. Actually, it was an artificial intelligence that spontaneously coalesced from the data stream on the World Wide Web because so much information was traveling back and forth that eventually the spark of life occurred in cyberspace. And this being, known as the Puppet Master, came to exist. And because it's made entirely of data, it is extremely powerful, learns very quickly, becomes sentient, and immediately notices Major, who is just barely human, but also highly, highly advanced. You find out that basically all of the stuff that the Puppet Master has been up to has been an attempt to make contact with the Major. And at the end of the movie, it's revealed that the Puppet Master's endgame is to mate with the Major, but not in a sexual way. The idea is that the two entities merge together to become one entity, something new that's never been seen before in the world. Mm. There's a great moment where Major's like, well, then I'll stop being myself. And the Puppet Master's basically like, yeah, that's the whole point. You know, you can't ever change by staying the same. And there's a really cool philosophy behind all of that. The reveal is actually an excellent reveal. And in the end, they do merge together. Mm -hmm. The Major is reborn. Her cybernetic body is destroyed. And she's put in a new body. And it's like a little girl's body. But it's not just the Major anymore. It's the Major and the Puppet Master together as a new being. Wow. So cool. Very, very kind of Buddhist where, you know, the individual, the idea of the individual self is uh, an illusion. And to hold on to that causes suffering. I wonder how much of that, uh, if he was influenced, you know, by any Buddhist thinking. Because it's really cool. It really is, right? I mean, you know, he's a uh, Japanese guy, Buddhist 
thought is prevalent in Japanese culture. You know, yeah. uh, Buddhism is not the main religion there, or maybe it is. It's among the it's it's among the main religions there. Yeah, I'll say that. There's no question that that's likely part of it. Very cool. And the anime is super short and sweet. It's filled with action. It's filled with absolutely bonkers animation from start to finish. If there's a movie that competes with Akira in terms of sheer hand-drawn animation, this one's it. Some of the visual effects, like I was describing, the cloaking, shielding that the Major used and several other characters in the story use, and that's just beautifully rendered. The motion is beautifully mm-hmm. rendered. Um, there's a lot of gunfire in this anime, more than most, and the gunfire is incredible. Like that's one thing that, always, that when I was watching again, I was like, man, like, the gunfire mechanics in this, they are so good. They're so on point. They kill it, huh? I felt like I was watching Heat or a James Cameron movie where I was just like, man, it's super convincing gunfighting. And overall, you know, it's a super satisfying movie experience, especially if you don't force yourself to try to understand all of the philosophy all at once. If you could just do yourself a favor, in my opinion, if you are planning to watch it for the first time, watch it just for the sake of enjoying it without thinking too hard about it and allow some of the plot points to kind of like catch up to you. Not that I think you should not try to look for the deeper meanings to things because you absolutely should, but you know, you can also enjoy things without that too. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's where, you know, it's very literary in that sense where it's operating on many levels where you're watching that first level and then you're going back and watching it again and again. And you're like, Oh shit, man. You know, if you don't know anything about ghost in the shell at all, you might think it's like a pew pew sci-fi movie. Yeah. And it is, but it's also this whole other thing too. You could probably watch this movie on mute and absolutely love it. I guess that brings us to the remake. Before that, we'll just say that the, the movie was eventually gained success. It had a sequel called Ghost of the Shell 2 Innocence. I saw that a couple of years ago, and it's pretty good. It's pretty mm-hmm. good. It, it, I probably should watch it again to see how much I actually like it. But having not seen it in like three or four years, I would recommend it You know, okay. to watch. Especially if you think Ghost of the Shell, go ahead and watch the sequel. I'll watch. There's also two different animated series. And honestly, I haven't seen any of those, but I will say this. This story, the manga idea behind the manga lends itself very strongly to the animated series. Because as I said, these are like, it's very episodic in the manga. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's always a different like case, you know, or a different uh, objective. Mm-hmm. Again, I haven't seen these, so I can't really tell you too much about it. But that brings us to the 2017 live action remake that starred Scarlett Johansson. I saw it when it came out and I watched it again this week. Like I said earlier in the episode, I liked it more this time, but I still had, it definitely felt a little dumbed down. The movie follows more or less the same plot as the anime. The live action follows more or less the same plot as the anime, Mm -hmm. except for there's one like really big difference. And I think for me, it causes a lot of dislike. Okay. One thing is obviously Scarlett Johansson plays the major and she's a white lady. And, you know, there's a the accusation of whitewashing in this movie. Yeah, there was so much controversy over that, right? They do sort of explain it away in this movie. She's not Major Makoto Kusanagi. She's Major Mira Killian. But they explain away the whitewashing by saying, you know, it's all these cybernetic bodies and there's like a black market for these cybernetic bodies. And that her white cybernetic body was just like the available body for the ghost, which is the ghost in the shell in the series is like the soul, the human soul. That her ghost was transplanted into this white girl's body, Ah. but she was originally as a little girl, Matoko Kusanagi, and that's her soul, Mm. which I guess is a, you know, 
if you want to do that, you know, like, but for me, I was just like, <laughs> but for me, I was like, why even bother? What, what difference does that make? <laughs> you know, like she goes and meets her Japanese mom and everything in the movie. And I'm like, okay, this movie has a slightly different plot where it's focusing on this character, the puppet master. Uh-huh. It's instead around another cyborg that was created in the same program that created the major and this cyborg's attempt to expose the black market body parts ring that's going on to create these cyborgs. Like basically, you know, people are dying so that the cyborgs can be made. And it's all like underground and everything. So the plot's different in that regard. It's disappointing to me because, you know, I really like the Puppet Master plot. And I really like the idea of the philosophical stuff that comes with that. You know what I mean? It's less moral and more philosophical. And this movie makes it more of a moral issue. Mm. And it's more about like, oh, they're killing people to make cyborgs. And that's a problem. We should stop that. And in the original, it's like, we're going to become something completely unheard of now because we're, you know, and it's, they don't even like bother to talk about the morality of it because it's the morality of it's completely unexplored because it's a totally new thing. Mm. So I do feel like in a way it's dumbed down a little bit. I love that opening scene. I, I, I think for me, like I enjoy like the visuals of this one of the movie were so cool, but yeah, the, but, it is a beautiful looking cool. movie. They do a really good job of recreating some of the most memorable scenes from the anime that the scene where she's cloaked and she fights that one guy in like the fountain, I guess it's a fountain. It's like two inches of water on the ground. They recreate that scene pretty much shot for shot and it's yeah. cool, almost shot for shot. And it's, it's really cool. Dope, they do it a couple huh? times in the movie. That scene was rad. My beef was this with okay. the visuals, even though the visuals look really cool. I think they over cyberpunk it. Mm. When you look at Niyahama in this movie, everywhere you look, there's a hologram selling stuff, you know, 20 stories tall and everything. And one of the things I like most about cyberpunk is the dirty, gritty sort of feel to it. And this movie kind of lacked that, in my opinion. Even though it looked really cool, it looked like they built a whole city overnight for this movie. Yeah. Instead of like the, the city had it's been not, there. For, yeah, it's not like Gotham-ish. It, yeah, it's very... Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't feel very lived in, you yeah. know? And none of the technology is like glitching or malfunctioning or the kind of thing I like to see, you know, that kind of lends to the lived in science fiction. So it kind of lacked that for me as well, even though on the surface it is a, it looks beautiful. I mean, it's got high end special effects. You know, you know, sure. what, you know what my complaint was, you asked me earlier about the, uh, the compared to the manga, I felt like in the manga, her character, I think she was drawn a, a little younger and she was a little more whimsical. And it, because of that, I felt like she was more she was more fleshed out and more of someone that you could identify with. I really had a problem like really connecting with Scarlett Johansson's take with this character because she would just had like almost one emotion. You know, she was yeah. almost so robotic that she was just glum the whole time. I'm going to be in the gigantic minority when I say this and I I know I am. But I personally think Scarlett Johansson was miscast, and not just because she was white, mm-hmm. you know. But I just, I just don't think she has the the range for this character, and I, I, I require somebody who's good at subtlety, and I, she just doesn't do it for me. And it's crazy because, like, I felt like you know Keanu Reeves, like his take with um, with Neo was great, and I loved him in The Matrix, and I remember. Uh, 
Will Smith almost got cast for uh, they offered it to him first. And he's like, I just never would have played it like that. And I just remember thinking, like, would it, he have played like a jokey? What would he have played? Yeah, almost like. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. one liners and. The whole yeah. Thing, sure. So this one, I was like uh, this one, I was like kind of shocked where I was like, it just felt so wooden. You know what it felt like to me? It felt like the only preparation that Scarlett Johansson did was watching the anime mm-hmm. and watching it with the English dubs. I know a lot of people don't love subtitles, and I understand that, you know, but I'm a subtitle person. Mm-hmm. I always choose subtitles. I leave subtitles on when the show's in English, mm-hmm. you know, because I like to read it too, because I feel like I get more comprehension out of it. Also, I, I like to see what's written out in case there's a different meaning to it or to see how a character's name is spelled or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So this movie has the original anime, the 1995 anime has, obviously it has the Japanese version that's uh, subtitled for English audiences, and it has the American dubbed version. And the, in the dub version, the major is played by an actress named Mimi Wood. So I don't know anything about at all. But I will say this, and I hate to be a shit talker, but she is horrible in this movie. <laughs> she, it is the, some of the worst, most flat, most unrehearsed voiceover acting I've ever heard in my entire life. I started watching it again this week, and I just put it on and started watching it. And I realized about 10 minutes into it that I was watching the dubbed version. And I was like, I can't even watch this. And I had to go find a different version so I could watch it like in uh, subtitles. Yeah. The character of Major in the original anime, if you watch it dubbed, is, is like that. She's just emotionless because the actress playing her is completely emotionless. And I think, you know, that read as a characteristic of the character to people who've seen the dubbed version more than a poor performance by the voice actor. Obviously, I'm not like the supreme authority on this, y'all. So if you have a different opinion, it's totally fine. But I can't, I can't even watch it. I literally can't watch it at all. Some of the other voice acting is good in it, but not the actress playing the major, sorry. But again, I'm not trying to take a big shit on the 2017 version. It's got its moments. There's definitely likable qualities to it. I liked it visually. I thought the graphics were cool. I thought the opening scene was dope with those spiders and the geisha. There are tons of dope scenes. Yeah. Like, it's a cool-looking movie. I just watched it, like, day before yesterday. And it's got lots of cool-looking stuff in it, for sure. So, you know, in in regards to uh, as a property, as far as, like, a gargantuan property, I was blown away to, you know, I play video games. I love video games, but I haven't played any of the Ghost in the Shell. So I was blown away to see that as a, a, a property, you've got anime, you got manga, anime, film, blockbuster film, you got uh, uh, video games. I mean, this is, you're talking about like a billion dollar freaking, again, a billion dollar property. Can you believe how freaking big this thing is. Yeah, it's got to be billions of dollars for sure. I mean, at this point, the value, I tried to Google value of the franchise just now and nothing came up. Sometimes oh, you yeah. can find that information. Uh, sometimes you can't. Yeah. Yeah, animated series. You're right. Animated series, not just the, oh my God. Yeah, and you know, plus, plus the, the, potential, the potential value. You know what I mean? The potential to create new, new yeah. movies and new video games, new animated series too on top of this. So, And I'm sure, I'm sure you've, got, uh, you've got like merchandising oh, included yeah. in that as far as figurines and toys. I would own some Ghosts in the Shell merchandise in a heartbeat. Heartbeat, man. If I could have a little major figure, that'd be that'd be sweet. I'd have that for sure. I yeah. mean, I guess I could have that. I'm not like 
I'm the kind of guy who buys something like that when I see it in person and the yeah. mood strikes me and I've got the money in my pocket. I'm not the kind of guy who's like online shopping for that kind of stuff. Yeah. At the drop. It's like dropping today. You got one. Yeah, hour, yeah, I'm, you I'm not that guy yeah. at all. You know what I mean? About <laughs> literally about anything at all, but I own a 16 inch Mecha Godzilla figure that's in my office that I was just at a comic book store and it was sitting there and I was like, well, that's coming home with me. You know what I mean? And I'm more like that. Uh, I'm more like, I need that in my life. I'm not thinking about it until I'm there. Yeah. I think the interesting question for me is back to the beginning, you know, kind of wrapping this up is the prophetic, you know, nature of, you know, what he, you know, unleashed in 19 or predicted or foretold in 19, you know, eight, late eighties. Uh, it's like, we're getting close with Elon Musk's Neuralink. And I mean, I think we're closer to this again than any other, you know, aspect, the simulation theory and, you know, where we're that, that might be a century away. You know, yeah, we got the metaverse, but there's a long way to go. But as far as us transhumanism and, you know, implanting various, we're already doing that. Yeah. We kind of touched on this earlier in this episode, but 30 years ago when this idea was fresh, it might've seemed like the distant future or an improbable future, or maybe a, maybe even just an unlikely future, but now it's definitely reality. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have the Neuralink implants available to us yet, but the technology already exists. And, you know, they're developing that stuff. Like having that kind of thing be a part of our life, having our brains hacked and trying to preserve our ghost when, you know, our mind is accidentally downloading like viruses and all this kind of stuff. That's going to be the next plane of human existence. I mean, we're already there. This kind of work is happening in research labs around the world where I just read something about, you know, where someone who's paralyzed was able to now with a, with a, a brain implant able to just type out sentences with thought. That is yeah. crazy. That is getting us so close. You know, that's one piece of the puzzle to where we're integrated. In my opinion, worldwide society would have to collapse on a monumental scale in order to avoid this reality. Yeah. We're too far into it now. You know, unless society collapses worldwide, this will happen to humans. Yeah. I'm not rooting for either way. I'm just observing. Uh, just, just so you guys know. Well, yeah. And, and it go, begs the question that, okay, you're a Neanderthal, right? And you're like, of course, you're not rooting for human beings like to supplant you in the evolutionary chain. But at the end of the day, that's what happened. And we, you know, are the beneficiaries of that, that fail, that loss, you know, right. of Neanderthals and our species overcame. The next species in all likelihood I think that it's that's why sci-fi is so important because it is pointing the way to say listen there will the next iteration of homo sapien will be transhuman it won't be just some you were going to grow wings right. or something like that you know maybe it'll be a little bit of both well i think i think now and again this is back to the akira you know we've got the the akira's looking at okay we're going to have a biological you know, adaptation or evolution. Right. And this is saying, no, we're going to have a transhumanist. Right. Where we're going to merge, not we're going to have implanted interfaces that allow us to merge with what already exists, the internet. I, I can't remember which episode we talked about this on, but I've, I've always had this idea that human life and technology 
are two sides to the same coin and that we're like advancing at the same space and advancing to towards a singularity. Eventually, technology and human life will become indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. You know, if things proceed as they're proceeding now, like a, that's the trajectory that our development is on. At least it seems that way. As an individual, you know, I like being outside in nature by myself without having even a cell phone, you know, laying in a tent and chopping firewood and starting a fire and that kind of thing. And I like that a lot more than I like being on my phone all the time, Mm -hmm. having my head stuck in the matrix or whatever. But which do I spend more time doing? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And when I have that thought, I'm just like, damn. And not not only that, Winston, it's not really about which one, what are you or I? What does the whole, the average human now? Yeah. The average human spends way more time connected to this information, you know, network called the internet. Who knows what it'll be called then? We finally did it. We circled back around (laughs) to the whole line. I knew it would happen eventually. I knew, uh, but back to the Coastler's uh, concept of the whole on, because we do want that. As an individual, we want to go out and be on our surfboard. But at the same time, we want to be connected to this information superhighway. And both are like impulsive and we can't stop ourselves no. from doing it. And they're at odds with each other in a lot of ways. Yes, you know? they are. Because you only have so many, you have one minute. Or you, right. What are you going to use that minute in? Outside right. or inside? Outside right. or inside? Right. You know? right. <laughs> and even though some of this stuff is kind of branching slightly away from the direct philosophical ideas of the story, they're very clearly peripheral philosophical ideas because here we are discussing them quite naturally. Like we accidentally got back to the whole on. And I knew I put a pin in it earlier on because like, I feel like we're going to end up back at this. And then we totally did. It just goes to show you that good works of fiction make you think, especially good works of science fiction. Yes, absolutely. And that's why the Ghost in the Shell franchise has to end up on our pantheon. Yeah. That's why we had to do an episode. That's why we have to talk about it and everything. This was a really good one, man. Ah, I'm really glad we did this one. And- me too. And, and again, what does it mean to be human, right? That's the question we always ask. Major can definitely answer that question for everybody. Yes. Or at very least have a different perspective that the rest of us don't have. That's for sure. This was a good one, man. I'm really pumped. Yeah, man. Two in a row. Two in a row. We don't have an idea for the next one, but I got to go out of town for a week, so we're not going to be recording until at least the end of next week. You know which I want to throw one out there that uh, yes. I'll encourage all of our uh, listeners to watch this movie as soon as it streams or comes out. But I, I'm really excited about watching Fablemans, uh, The Fableman, which is about oh, Steven yeah. Spielberg. Oh, yeah. And it's not a science fiction story at all. But it's you about know, it's him. Just, and and I think we yeah. should do an episode about him. About Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Oh, man, that is a great idea. He has done a ton of science fiction. Yeah. What a titan, right, of sci-fi. Oh, my gosh. All right, dude. All right, brother. That was awesome, man. That was a really good one. You have a good trip, and we'll just kind of you know, send me messages and let me know how it's going over there. Sounds good, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. Late. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast... You can definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds Magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. 
You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Thank you.